You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. This week's episode is going to be part two of NSLT's conversation with Bonnie Jenkins. Bonnie is the founder and chair of Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security, a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, and the former special envoy and coordinator for threat reduction programs in the State Department Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation, along with several other prominent government positions. If you'd like to hear the first part of our conversation with Bonnie, go back and listen to the episode from two weeks ago. Our conversation with Bonnie is another installment in our series celebrating the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage by highlighting women's achievements in national security. But before we start the cast, I'd just like to note the lawyers appearing on NSLT are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Um, Let's jump to another major issue that you worked on. You were counsel on the 9-11 Commission. Can you uh, tell us what you did in that job and in the 15 years since the commission closed, Do you think our intelligence community has evolved sufficiently based on the lessons articulated in the 9-11 report? Um, So for the 9-11 commission, I was one of several people that were on a team. The 9-11 commission staff were broken up into teams. I think there were eight teams altogether. And each team was focusing on a different aspect of the 9-11 story. Um, And so the team that I was on was called the, we represented the National Security Council. We're like a mirror of the National Security Council. So each one of us in my team took on a different agency that's part of the NS, National Security Council. So I was uh, OSD. We had somebody who was state. We had somebody who was um, um, the White House. We had somebody who was Intel. Um, and so, for example, for me, I had to interview um, OSD secretaries, past secretaries, I had to do the DOD side, so I had to interview this uh, commandants, uh, combatant commanders for like a, a Central Command, Special Operations Command. Uh, so I was a DOD person. I had to tell that story, and it's similar for the other people. So that was my work. Is I that was my focus was DOD OSD, and and so that's what the team did. And then there were seven other teams that looked at. There was a team that looked at the New York side story. There was a team that looked just on the um, Yes, more people for walk, working on the FBI, for example, and then same with Intel. What's what's happened since then? Um, you know, I I I don't know how much I can say because I'm not. I mean, I used to be in Navy Intel. I'm not really. I'm not in that anymore. Um, so it's hard to it's hard to say. I would I would think that there's a little bit more collaboration amongst different Intel uh, departments. You know, I can't say that whether, I mean, I think a lot of the focus was on the FBI more so than um, the info side per se. Um, I think that there there's a lot of lessons learned for the FBI because of the report. My sense is that there was a little bit more collaboration with the field offices and with the FBI headquarters, but I, I don't, I can't really say for sure if there is or not. Thanks, Bonnie. Um, let's let's move on. You've you've really it's it, it's hard to fit all of your amazing accomplishments into a podcast. I want to be frank with our listeners, but let's do our best. Um, a lot of our young listeners uh, look at think tanks and imagine a life of you know forever intellectual pursuit. But you have worked at some of them, and let's start with Brookings. Um, 
we haven't had too many guests talk about what that's like. And um, if you could talk about your work, and then also if you don't mind adding any of the challenges uh, that is that that you faced or that think tanks face generally, and, and you may comment on that perhaps in the context of COVID as well. Um, yeah, thanks for the question. Um, yeah, right now I am a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings. And for me, what that means is I do research and I write. Um, one of the things I like about the think tank world, especially after coming from government, is it took me a while to get to adjust. Um, and it reminded me of my life when I was working on my dissertation, um, the, the part that I actually liked about doing the dissertation, which was the writing uh, part. Um, it's very scholarly. You know, it's it's very you know it's much more it's much slower pace, of course, in the government where everything was you can get a task what they call these taskers and say okay in two hours we want you to you know send it out to all your contacts get things approved and get it back to us get it back up to the secretary's office in a couple hours, you know and you can run around and you know and and you know you send out emails you get responses the think tank world was is a lot slower which is not a bad thing. It took me a lot. It took me it took a while to get used to the fact that people didn't immediately respond to my emails, for example. And I'd be like, well, "How come you didn't respond?" It's because because they don't necessarily feel like they they have to respond as soon as they see it. They're not ignoring you. They just have a slower pace. Um, I got to really like it. I really started to say, "This is this is nice." I forgot what it's like to not be on this, this constant kind of pressure. And I think maybe because I was an ambassador, it was maybe a little bit more. Um, because, well, for whatever reason, but um, I like the slower pace. It's a lot more scholarly. You're doing research, you're doing writing, but you also want to have a policy impact. So everything you write has got to have, so what does this mean? And, and you know, and it's the same in government where you have policy papers, but it's a different way of, you're not writing papers just to say, I want to write about the history of this or you have to say, okay, so what policy impact? Because you want to, because the think tank kind of is balancing that world of being scholarly and also wanting to impact policy. Um, so for young people, I think it's a, it's a, it's a nice place if you want to learn, if you want to do some research uh, and also learn about policy and how to impact policy and get involved in both the policy world um, while you're also doing scholarly research. Um, and in the COVID-19 timeframe, I guess the only difference is that like everyone else, you're at home doing all your work. Most of the think tanks, I know Brookings, for example, you know, like most everyone else in Washington kind of closed down. Um, and like everyone else, it took some adjustments because there's always these regular monthly meetings where everyone gets together and talk about their research. And, you know, that's a big part of the, re of the think tank world is hearing what everyone else is doing. And sharing that, and having being able to present your work, um, so you just learn to do it in a different platform. And like everything else, and everyone else, everyone's learning. It changes the way in which that works, and you lose something by not having that personal reflection of what people are saying. But you just learn to adjust, like everyone else. <laughs> and in addition to working at Brookings, you're also the chair of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine study on applications and alternative technologies of radioactive sources. Could you tell us what that group is working on? 
Yeah, um, and yeah, I can't say a whole lot about uh, the details, except to say that this is, it's really exciting to work um, with the National Academies on the study that they're doing because um, it's, it's another one of these new type of experiences to just be surrounded by all these people that know so much stuff. <laughs> um, but it's really, what it's really trying to do is look at how we can reduce the use of what they call high-risk radiological materials, um, trying to see if there are alternative technologies that can be used that are just safer um, to, for the use, for their use. Um, there was a study that was done in 2008 um, on radiation source use and replacement. And so what this study is doing is building on that and building on what was found uh, in that study to see if there are additional ways in which we can um, find alternative technologies to radiological materials that are being used uh, so that we can make sure everybody's safer. I mean, I think that's probably the best way to put it. And of course, you know, radiological sources, whether they're used in research, medical, industrial use, or commercial applications. So trying to see how we can make it so it's, these sources are, are more safe. All right. Well, Bonnie, my favorite part of this podcast will forever be the part where you said without irony that um, it's hard to understand, you know, but people move slower while you're at Brookings. Um, and then you briefly said you weren't sure why. And I think about what you were working on with government. And I have to say that made me smile. And I hope a couple of other listeners will, too. Um, but let's let's move on. The intelligence world, the national security world is expanding and becoming more inclusive, which is a very positive uh, development, but you're also the founder and president of Women of Color, Color Advancing Peace, Security, and Conflict Transformation. Um, and it go is it how would you what, what acronym would you use? And tell us also it's it's W caps. Yes, you're right. You're okay, right. and W caps. Tell us about it and what your goals are uh, for that organization. Hi, right, thanks. Um, so yeah, I established Seven Caps in 2017, and really the goals of the organization is, I mean, there's several. One is to develop a network of women of color in the fields of peace and security, which includes foreign policy and national security issues. But uh, it's a very expansive definition to include things that are really impacting us around the world. So of course, of course, um, what they call hard and soft security. So that's climate change issues, illicit trafficking, all the way to weapons of mass destruction. But to create a network, because so, I mean, I know for me, for example, in the area of weapons of mass destruction, it's very, it's, it's not very diverse at all. Um, so I pretty much lived a life of not being around a lot of people of color. Um, there were women, but certainly not as many as would have been nice. Now there are many more, which is great. Uh, still not parity, but there's a lot more than when I started. Um, but in so many of these fields, I ran into women who are young, young women in, in mid-career who always were saying, I feel like I'm by myself, there's no one else out there. And in some fields, I think they're like, like there really there weren't as many, but there's some fields where there are. And so um, people shouldn't feel isolated when there are other women out there working on the field, they just don't know who they are. And so it's really developed a network, both for, uh, both for women to meet other women in the field, but also for women who are in those fields where there aren't that many people of color to meet other women um, so that they don't feel by themselves. Um, the other is to really, um, to be more impactful in policy decisions, uh, to strengthen numbers. 
Um, and so to find platforms where we can get our voices out more. So I'm, so we really promote our members to be on panels, to write papers. We do our own publications just to get out there more, whether it's on TV, whether it's on podcasts, whether it's on, you know, in think tanks where they don't have a lot of people of color on their panels, just to get out there more so people can see that there are women who are really, who are working on so many things. Um, we have a number of working groups when we have on illicit trafficking. And we had this great conversation with one of our members who works on illicit trafficking of timber. You know, um, and she says she's like the only person she knows who's one of the person of color works on it. It's just amazing the things that women are working on. So just to get us out there and also to, I guess the final thing I'll say is there's just a lot of, you know, as you know, oh, we don't know anyone who does this. And so really to try to let people know that yes, there are women who do this. You just don't know who they are. And so to provide that ability for people to be able to find women who work in these fields. So Bonnie, thanks so much for your leadership in uh, WCAPS. I'm proud to say that I'm a member and I know from personal experience how much you're doing to support and advance women in national security and women of color in national security. Um, with all that we've covered, uh, we kind of talked a little bit about your background, but I just kind of want to put a fine point on it as far as your education goes. I'll point out again, you have a PhD in international relations from UVA, an LLM in international and comparative law from Georgetown, an MPA from SUNY Albany, a JD from Albany Law School, and a BA from Amherst. And you've also been on the other side of the chalkboard as an adjunct professor at Georgetown Law, an advisor at Harvard Law, and a fellow at the Kennedy School. A question we get from a lot of young lawyers is whether it's worth it to get an LLM or a PhD. And it seems like you're the absolute perfect person to ask. Um, what advice can you give them? Uh, thanks for that question, and, and thanks for your kind words. Um, I would say it, it all depends on what one wants to do. Um, I have, I mean, a PhD to me is something I always wanted to do, but it does take, um, it does, it does test your, it does test your endurance <laughs> um, and your interests. Um, and, uh, but I have found, I mean, I always encourage, I just say, I, I encourage you get as people to get as much education as you possibly can financially or, you know, situationally, um, and can, because I think the more you have, the more doors that open, but it's not always feasible to do. Um, so I would say for me, the LLM I did because I realized, I said, I wanted to get more of a focus on my particular area because I was actually working in international law. And I had no background in international law. I had no education. Now that you need it, as you know, as lawyers, you don't necessarily, depending on what you're doing, you don't necessarily have taken a course in law school to do something. But I wanted to just get more information because I learned, I started to like international law as a field. So I wanted to go back and get a, where all I did for the, for the year is take just international public law courses. Um, and, uh, and so that's something I wanted to do, and I, I like that. Um, and of course, with the LLM, you can teach, if you're interested, you can teach in law school. Um, um, I, then of course, the PhD is, if you're interested in teaching uh, at a university, that's always useful. If you wanna do more research, more specialized research, it's good to have a PhD. It does open more doors, depending on what you wanna do. So I would recommend, if you're interested in more education, and you can do it, to definitely do it, 
uh, and think about where it is that you want to be. And that can help you decide which one you would rather do, whether it's LLM or a PhD. Sometimes in the legal field, there's a tension between academics and practitioners. And you're someone who is both of those. So could you tell us how your education has shaped your views as you approach problems in the real world? I would say that um, when I went back to get my PhD, I did think about whether I wanted to get it in you know, if you're going to go, if you're getting a degree like in international relations, there's like two types of schools. You can go to like what they call a, a, a theory school where you will learn just IR theory focused work, or you can go to like a government school, like a um, Kennedy School or Tufts um, uh, University. Um, and so I went with theory mainly because um, I had already at that time been working in policy for many years. And so I wanted to understand some of the theory that underlie some of the work that we do. Not that we do, not that when somebody says something they're saying, well, I'm taking this position to become a realistic theory, or this is liberal, this is liberalism. You don't, <laughs> don't, think, you don't think that way when you're in government, but it does, it, but when you also analyze what people do, when you analyze what the US does sometimes, there's a much more realist realism way in which we're doing things versus the more liberal way, which is to work more with international organizations and things like that. So having that background for me has been helpful. And not that I necessarily think about it all the time either, but having that understanding, I think, helps me un helps me figure out why which way we're going and why what we're doing may be perceived a certain way internationally, because things do fit into certain camps, not totally. So I think it's helped me to have a much broader understanding of what we do and a much better understanding when people talk about realism and liberalism, you know, I know what they're talking about and, you know, and I get that. And I, so I think it helps me have a much more rounded view of the policies that we do and the politics that we do. So, um, and I, but I understand, you know, when you have these, one last thing I'll say is there's always these, these questions about, the gap between policy and academia and helping academia understand policy because there are there are different worlds and similar to what i said about think tanks and government it, you know government and academia are very different worlds in many of the same ways and i think academia is very often trying to figure out how do we how do our scholarly writings impact policy we want people to actually read these things and do things because we spent all this time writing this stuff um, and I think there is a, there are lessons to help people understand how to make their writings more applicable to policy people who don't have the time to read long papers, who don't have the time to read long scholarly pieces, even though it'd be nice to do, they just don't do it um, because you just don't have the time. And so understanding how the two worlds can work together, I think is very important. Let's, um, you obviously, you're always looking for new planets to explore, new mountains to climb, but what is next for you? And um, tell us what events you might point to that would be uh, interesting uh, to people who are listening to this who might want to explore some of your interests. Um, I think for now, my next steps is just to continue with the organization because we're still pretty new. We'll be three years in September. Um, so, and we're, you know, we've expanded. We're now in many, we've expanded our chapters. So we're we're now in New York, California, uh, London. We're going to be launching a chapter in Paris. We're in Ghana. Um, so we're growing very fast, and our working groups are growing fast, our membership. So I think I need to stay put for, for a while just to, because we're still so new. Um, 
so that's my immediate uh, thinking right now. As far as um, the organization and other things, um, like I said, we are having our anniversary next month, so we're going to be doing a lot of things for that anniversary. Um, I'm also uh, leading something called the Organizations and Solidarity Initiative, where after the George Floyd killing, we had a sign-on letter, which has over 200 organizations and individuals who signed on, and it has 12 commitments, which these organizations have committed to. So we're, we're establishing an infrastructure to keep that going. So uh, we're having a meeting today of those organizations that have signed on um, to meet in the working group, the 12 working groups that mirror the 12 commitments in the statement. Um, and they go from everything to from uh, committing to diversifying their boards, to dealing with microaggressions, to doing more outreach to local people of color and bringing them into organizations. They're, they're pretty interesting. You can see them if you go online to our website. Um, so that's taking up a lot of time to develop the infrastructure, but it's really interesting because we have organizations from purely national security organizations and think tanks and media and human rights, everyone from Carnegie Endowment to Oxfam um, to Armed Control Association. We, we have a number of uh, foundations who are part of it from Rockefeller Brothers to uh, Plowshares. So it's a, it's a really, um, it's a large, it's a large uh, thing we're trying to do. So that's also going to be taking up a lot of my time. But people can find out about that by going to the WCAPS website. So we're definitely going to link to that. We'll also link uh, listeners back to our June 11 podcast. When you help launch the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security, uh, Women in National Security yes, Project. I just want to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> so why, why don't you say a couple of words about that as well? Yes, yeah, so we have launched, uh, and I think it's a relaunch, because I think there was one before, um, the Women in National Security Law uh, effort. We've had one event so far. The idea is to have a number, a, a series of discussions. Um, so please link to that event, to the upcoming event that we're having. Um, so people who are interested in that, please check it out. There's, a, there's also... Um, you know, upcoming events that we're going to be doing with that. So if you want to be, and a lot of it's also, it's not just um, having a chance to hear from uh, women in national security in the field, national security law in the field, um, but, you know, hearing about what they're doing, but hearing about how they got to where they are, um, which I know young, young women are always interested, and young men also always interested in hearing about the path of, of people, so, um, and how they got to where they are, what they achieved, so. Um, definitely check it out. Check out the link that Yvette's going to be uh, putting into into this uh, podcast. All right, Bonnie. Thanks so much for being here with us. Um, I, I'm happy to say that I have referred now two interns to WCAPS. Oh, um, so you have two new members. Um, so I just want to thank you again. And we're going to link your bio, uh, which uh, will be the longest link, I think, um, in terms of uh, of all of the information contained in it. We're also going to link the WCAPS website. Um, so uh, we're going to make sure that we have uh, some information about your work on radioactive sources. All right. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to NSLT. Uh, keep tuning in to hear about news, legal analysis, events, and other national security law will keep you up to speed during this pandemic. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice and be sure to find us send us comments and feedback because we want to hear from you. 
We're at Twitter at ABA NATSEC, and we're on email at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. We will be back next week with more content. Be well, everyone. We are all in this together, even though we are apart. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. Thank you.